every time I'm walking through grass and I'm just high stepping it like a football player and you know just knees to the chest the entire time checking my ankles when I come back in is there anything crawling on me that's the writer Andrew Zaleski he recently reported an article about Lyme disease and he's talking about an experience I think that we've all probably had of trying to avoid disease carrying ticks today on the show we're talking about Lyme disease There's no vaccine available for the disease, which affects about half a million people every year. But once upon a time, there was a vaccine. It was called Limerix, and it was available starting in 1998. So there was a vaccine, but now there isn't. Limerix was the only effective FDA-approved vaccine in the U.S. ever to have been voluntarily withdrawn from the market. So I wanted to know, how does that happen? How does a vaccine disappear? I think that there's one sort of simple answer that has something to do with vaccine skepticism, which we've all been thinking about this last year. But in looking into it, it's really more complicated than that. And really, the story of Limerick does tell us about vaccine skepticism, but it also tells us about how medical research and drug approval and our healthcare system work in general. I'm Alex Perry. And I'm Laura Marsh. This is The Politics of Everything. Our first guest is Rebecca Onion, who wrote an article for Slate in July about how the Lyme vaccine disappeared from the market. So I've always loved hiking. And over the last year or two during the pandemic, it's been one of the activities that I've felt most comfortable doing because you're outside. It's like incredibly socially distant. And the only part of hiking that I felt uncomfortable with has been this pervasive fear of ticks and of catching Lyme disease. And so I was thinking idly, wouldn't it be great if there was a vaccine for Lyme disease? And I Googled this and Rebecca, I found your article that there was a Lyme disease vaccine. I had never heard of this and no one I spoke to has ever heard of it. Can you just tell me how did it work? It caused a human body to create antibodies which then, if a tick were to latch onto them, would go into the tick's body and neutralize the bacteria which causes Lyme, which is called Borrelia burgdorferi. The tick would keep on biting you, but they couldn't do anything to you. And it was made by SmithKline Beecham. Now it's GlaxoSmithKline, but then it was SmithKline Beecham. How effective was the vaccine? Well, so in trials, it showed 78% effectiveness, but you had to take three doses over the course of a year. Three doses over a year is kind of tough. But I mean, as I said in the article, like I'd still take it. <laughs> like, I was like, sure, sign me up. <laughs> well, that was, that was also my reaction, learning that this existed. I was like, I would get this tomorrow. And even if it was three shots, I would happily get this vaccine. It would be amazing to go out into the country and just be able to walk around or do whatever it is that you want to do without worrying about getting Lyme disease. What went wrong? Uh, It's such a complicated story. So I thought before I looked into it a little bit more, I thought that the answer to that was just your basic vaccine skepticism caused the withdrawal of the Lymerix vaccine. And I sort of thought that a little bit because of Paul Offit. He's a pediatrician who's been involved with the development of several vaccines. Wrote a really good book on the Cutter incident, which was something that happened when they were rolling out the polio vaccine in the 50s. The Cutter incident, people got sick from taking the polio vaccine. Is that what happened? The Cutter incident was this terrible thing that happened where a lab out in California did not follow 
protocols perfectly and producing the salt polio vaccine. And because of that, some of the lots of the vaccine were contaminated. And so some people got polio from the vaccine. And so since then, there's been a fear around vaccines that they could make you sick. And were people worried that the Lyme disease vaccine was going to make them sick? Some people even were bringing suits about it. So this whole story is complicated by the existence of so-called chronic Lyme. Some people who had been suffering from Lyme for a long time when the vaccine was out took it and thought that the vaccine had sort of like reactivated the bacteria in their body and created arthritic conditions in them. And this caused them to turn against the vaccine. And they were sort of an important part of the groups of people who were lobbying for the vaccine to be taken off the market. They believed that they had been harmed by it. So we should point out that these concerns were contradicted by an FDA study, which found no evidence of elevated rates of arthritis in vaccine recipients. In other words, the rate of arthritis for people who got the Lyme vaccine was no higher than the rate for people in the general population or the rate of arthritis among people who got a placebo instead of the actual vaccine. But the manufacturer was still worried it would be vulnerable to lawsuits. So Paul Offit wrote the book about the Cutter incident. The book is a lot about the way that liability worked after polio, how things have developed on that front. And so his perspective was that the withdrawal of Lyme Ricks, which happened about four years after it was approved, was because the company felt that it was not going to be sufficiently covered because the shot wasn't covered by the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program. So I think we need to explain something about vaccine approval and liability here. Because the Lyme-Rix vaccine, there's like a list of vaccines that are approved that manufacturers basically cannot be sued over. And then this was not on that list, right? Yeah, that's right. So it was given, I believe it was called a permissive classification. They were basically saying, if you feel that you would benefit from this, by all means, go ahead. But it was not a recommended vaccine in the way that the MMR shot was, which is a really different classification. So the stakes for liability are really different. And it left them open to the lawsuits you were talking about. And then that gets at the fact that Limerix was never unapproved. It was voluntarily withdrawn from the market. And I think, as you also sort of point to it, because it was only ever treated as sort of an optional, eh, you know, if you want this, you should get it. But it wasn't treated as serious a, a vaccine as like MMR or the ones that are required. Which is kind of interesting because I feel like from our perspective in 2021, I feel like I see Lyme as like a huge problem. Like incidence has tripled since 2000, in part because of shifting climate conditions, in part because of houses being built closer and closer to the woods. So just our perspective on how necessary a shot would be is really different now. You started your article asking how much you'd pay for the vaccine, and you said it would be like $1,000. And I don't know if that exact dollar amount is what everyone else would hit on, but definitely there would be a lot of demand for a Lyme disease vaccine now. But back when it was first authorized, it was really treated as something only a few people would even care about. There's some testimony from the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC, where some of the people on the committee, doctors, public health people, called Lyme Ricks the yuppie vaccine. I'm totally paraphrasing right now, but this one doctor said, oh, I think 
I think the only people who are interested in this vaccine are the people who want to get a quick shot before they dash off to Cape Cod. Like I believe the words L.L. Bean and Esprit were (laughs) cited in relationship to the kind of person who would be paying for this vaccine. The fact that it was seen as something so optional where the disease was like not really that big of a problem also led, I think, to sort of like a a depressed market for it. So they just didn't sell as many shots of it as they thought they were going to. Going back to the anti-vax sentiment that you originally thought might have something to do with this, is it the case that there is an element of that, but it's also the fact that the authorities didn't take Lyme disease seriously enough? Yeah, it's interesting. Even in reading some of these older histories, a couple of these articles were written 10 or 15 years ago, and they would say things about Lyme, like, this is really just like not a disease, it's a big problem. Like, if you see it, you realize that you have it, you take a course of antibiotics, and and it's it's okay. And I think now, from everything I've read, it seems like public health actually is recognizing, you know, not only the cases have gone up, but also the burden of, if you get sick with it, it's a can be a dramatic thing in people's lives. And I think that that is recognized a little bit more. But in 2000, it was sort of like an unusual new thing. If you could go back to the late 90s and tell everyone how much more widespread it would become in a few decades, how it would spread geographically, it wouldn't just be a New England problem for yuppie hikers. It would (laughs) spread across much of the country. I do wonder if, on the one hand, the FDA would have treated it differently, and on the other hand, if they would have marketed it differently. You know, the company in marketing it, they did direct to consumer pharmaceutical ads for it. Mm -hmm. And they marketed it as a way to sort of avoid the anxiety of going outside. And the images were like of a well-dressed white lady in her backyard, like that kind of thing. But it's a misnomer to consider Lyme as something that only hits Northeastern liberals. And of course, now it's spreading. They found it in the Bay Area. They found it all over everywhere. So more and more, it'll become a question of like, are you required to be outside for your job, then this this might be something that might affect you. How many people ended up actually getting the vaccine in the period when it was available? One number that can kind of say a little bit about how few people were getting the shot by the time the four years had ended is that in 2001, the company earned uh, only $5 million from the shot and only 93,000 people bought doses. And then in 2002, right before it was gone, in the first two months, it was only 10,000 doses. So things were really starting to dwindle by the time that the the vaccine was pulled off the market. Wow, that's really low. So every, every person I've mentioned this Lyme disease vaccine to, a lot of people who've lived in the Northeast for many decades, no one remembered it. Like every single person I mentioned this to was just shocked. <laughs> that this had ever been available. They had the same reaction I had, which was like, if they knew they would get it. Why do you think it's just disappeared from memory? It's so interesting. I feel like it's only recently that, I mean, for obvious reasons, that we think about vaccines like a lot. (laughs) I always have just gotten all the vaccines I'm supposed to get and given my child all the vaccines she's supposed to get and been happy about it, but not felt like it was solving a huge problem in my life because those problems were all hypothetical. I think that might be part of it is that we're a little bit unaccustomed to thinking about vaccines as something that are like immediately helpful to our lives as opposed to sort of a background advantage of living in a country that's pretty technologically advanced and has tried pretty hard to get rid of certain infectious diseases. You described the marketing of this and and I think 
there was some sense probably in which that marketing made people think, well, they're just trying to make me scared of this disease. They're mm -hmm. inventing something for me to be worried about, so I take their medicine. And then, you know, it sort of disappeared without leaving much in the memory. Do you think there's anything that we can learn from the story of the Lyme disease vaccine in this moment? It's funny because when I was writing this piece, I tried to find vaccine politics people who might be willing to hazard a guess as to whether new vaccines like this would have an easier or a harder time coming to market. Someone who would say, oh yeah, this sort of madness over the COVID vaccine is going to make it so that vaccines can't be approved, like people will be too up in arms about it. Or the appreciation of the COVID vaccine will be so strong that people will sort of have a renewed investment in the vaccine approval process and will lobby or be more aware of it. And everyone that I asked was just like, I'm not going to say, I have no idea, which is like a classic, mm -hmm. that's like a classic <laughs> COVID politics medical expert thing. Yeah, I feel like that has been a recurring theme on the show is uh, me especially saying, uh, I'm just not going to predict things anymore. No idea. To me, it's sort of like, I don't know. I mean, I don't think the government is perfect. and I don't think pharmaceutical companies are perfect, but I feel a little bit more inspired by the story of Lyme Rex to be a little bit more active in, oh, I hate even saying this, supporting pharmaceutical companies in their valiant efforts <laughs> to, bring, <laughs> to bring the magic juice to us that will cause us to be able to go into the woods again. Like, no, obviously, right. but uh, in a way, sort of, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, well, I feel like this is also a story about the conditions that enable a vaccine to be successful, right? Like it's a story about how do you get people on board if they're hesitant about vaccines? How do you create the regulatory infrastructure to allow their manufacturers to succeed and, and allow it to be viable? Did you feel like when you were working on the story that there were things that you pulled out here that were also relevant to thinking about the COVID vaccines, like understanding there are these other reasons that aren't necessarily obvious about why people don't get a vaccine? One thing that some of the historians of medicine did say about the permissive designation, so Lymrex again was designated as you can take this if you want, but you don't have to was that physicians didn't know what to say. Like it was unclear who would be a good candidate. At that time, people in the government weren't doing as much tracking of which parts of the United States had more Lyme ticks in them. And so it does seem like individual doctors being able to identify candidates and try to talk them into it would maybe have helped get this to more people and maybe would also help get the COVID vaccine to more people. But that kind of infrastructure is hard in our country because a lot of people don't have individual doctors or easy access to them or healthcare to pay them. Well, it's funny the feelings towards our healthcare system and our pharmaceutical companies that that we have during this pandemic era because this is a story where a Lyme vaccine is not available because the company that developed it is choosing not to sell it, right? And they're choosing not to sell it because they were afraid of liability because it's not profitable. It wasn't profitable to keep selling Lime Ricks. Yeah, yeah. And you're saying that <laughs> makes you sort of give them a little bit of a side eye. That, I think, speaks both to some of the skepticism people have about the motives of pharmaceutical companies, but it also leads me to wonder, will this just happen all over again with some future treatment for Lyme or other diseases? Interesting you should say that because so Paul Offit, remember the, the historian, pediatrician, pro-vaccine guy who wrote the book about the Cutter incident, mm -hmm. his whole thing is 
the government needs to figure out ways to structure liability so that companies will be incentivized to make vaccines. So at the time that he wrote that book, he was sort of in despair about the potential for a lot of lawsuits about various vaccines to make it so that American pharmaceutical companies would just not do it. I remember reading stories about this very pre-pandemic fears that America was losing its edge in terms of the number of companies that we had that were willing to produce. So for somebody like Offit, the answer to the question would be, you know, what do you expect if they're going to get like slammed with all these lawsuits and there's no reform in the system, the government doesn't protect them, then what do you expect from them? So I'm not 100% sure that I agree with that perspective. I think, well, can we nationalize them? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, you're right. I mean, that would be where I would, my own feeling would be like, I mean, you know, why did GlaxoSmithKline, you know, why the government could have just made its own Lyme vaccine? Right. <laughs> like, <laughs> just have the government. I mean, then of course we would come up with all kinds of problems. How would they choose which ones to do? But at least we would have some sort of like democratic control over it? Question mark? Possibly. <laughs> um, I always like to end any discussion with just saying question mark. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> question mark. <laughs> <Like>. Nationalize <laughs> and then profit. No, I think that nationalize is always a good thought to end yeah, on. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Probably one we've hit in previous episodes, too. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Rebecca. Thank you. Rebecca Onion's article, Where's My Lyme Vaccine, was published in Slate in July. After the break, we're talking with the writer Andrew Zaleski, who you heard at the beginning of the show, about how much more widespread Lyme disease has become since the vaccine was last available, and whether any preventive Lyme treatments are on the horizon. So we've been talking about how Laura was wondering about a Lyme disease vaccine and discovered there was one that has been withdrawn from the market. That was about 20 years ago at this point. Since that vaccine was withdrawn, Lyme has gone from something that was isolated to the Northeast and parts of the upper Midwest. It's gone nationwide. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining us. Can you tell us the scope of Lyme in the U.S. and how much worse or more widespread it's gotten in the last few decades? You're correct, Alex. It used to be this weird regional infection. Since then, it's just exploded. There are about 100 million people in the U.S. who live in some sort of area where they can get Lyme. The number of Lyme infections about a decade ago were around 300,000, which itself is a very large number. It's ballooned. Almost half a million people, at least according to CDC figures, are diagnosed and treated for Lyme disease every year now. So we were also talking about the period when the Lyme disease vaccine was available and Lyme disease was not particularly well understood. It wasn't really considered a serious illness. What is the worst case scenario for someone who contracts Lyme? It's not caught early and because it's not caught early, it's not treated. So it can start spreading. It could spread to the brain. It could spread to the heart. It could spread to other major organs. And from that point on, it just causes this kind of never-ending cascade of symptoms and problems. Bart Yasso, this famous marathon runner, just always has swollen joints, can never run without feeling arthritis of some sort. You wrote your story for Outside Magazine, which is a magazine that focuses on outdoor pursuits. Obviously, Lyme disease is a big reason not to go out onto a trail. What have been the effects of Lyme on outdoor culture? 
there was this study conducted by some researchers at Yale a little while back that found that in order to avoid possibly contracting Lyme, people will take a billion fewer trips outside. It's pretty big numbers. I would imagine to go back to what I said at the beginning, that number would have been a lot smaller 20 years ago when we had this Lyme vaccine, because I know for one, when I was a kid, we gave basically no consideration to the threat of Lyme when we went outside, which is probably how I ended up contracting it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm fine now. But now, you know, if I'm doing certain stuff with my kid, I'm like, uh, all right, we're going to we're gonna tuck the pants into the socks. We're going to check you. All these things that I that wouldn't have occurred to my parents to do for me. And so now that, that we have this awareness of it, awareness with no vaccine anymore— what do we do? Is there any is there anything on the horizon that will save us from this huge spread of Lyme disease? Kind of the thrust of this outside story was talking to Dr. Mark Klempner, who has devised, along with a larger team, this prophylaxis that he calls Lyme PrEP, PrEP being the acronym. And basically, it's a monoclonal antibody. The whole idea is you would get this annual injection when a Lyme-carrying tick bites you. It sucks in your blood, and it would suck in this antibody that would immobilize the Lyme-causing bacteria, Borrelia, within its gut, which means it wouldn't transfer into you, and presumably you would not get Lyme disease. He began a, a phase one trial February of this year and is hoping maybe this will be out on the market sometime in the 2024 timeframe. This is a preventative Lyme treatment, but it's not a vaccine, correct? That's right. It's a preventative treatment that gives you an antibody. The difference there is a vaccine normally stimulates an immune response that will generate an antibody. This is the antibody itself. When this eventually comes onto the market, do you foresee it encountering some of the problems that Lyme Ricks had with people not wanting to get vaccinated or having concerns about taking a treatment for this? I mean, Mark Klempner had said that he thinks it's going to fight some kind of acceptance battle because of, of the problems that emerge around Lyme Ricks. How far along is it in trials? The phase one trial started with 60 participants in February 2021. So that's a dosage study. Figure out how much of Lyme prep people need in order to protect them, say, six to eight months. And then you gradually expand the participant population and you start doing studies of the safety. How many people could take this safely? Does it work? Is it actually doing the thing that it's supposed to do, which is prevent Lyme disease? So this is interesting, though, because uh, uh, I feel like we've been highlighting the ways that this PrEP is different from a vaccine. We were talking with our previous guest, Rebecca, about Lyme ricks being withdrawn not solely because of anti-vax sentiments, but also in, in part it was a story of a drug company not knowing how to market this vaccine and, and not feeling like there was enough of a consumer base for it. And I think that while the consumer base has grown since then, do you expect that, that the fact that this is not a vaccine will be a selling point in favor of this PrEP if and when it is approved? I would imagine so. If, if you can very objectively and easily explain the difference between a vaccine, which would generate an immune response to create antibodies versus here's the antibody, you're just getting the antibody. And if you have it in your body, it should presumably prevent your getting Lyme. 
You would think it would, but I don't, I don't know. Well, I did think reading your piece, one thing that, that I found interesting was like, I no longer have to be introduced to the concept of injecting antibodies now that we know of that as a treatment for COVID-19, right? In this post-COVID world, like, oh, okay, that's one therapeutic treatment for COVID is, is directly injecting these antibodies. And, and even the concept of PrEP, the other usage of PrEP for, for d- disease prevention that I know of is HIV, which is completely well accepted. So I do wonder if, like, societally, we are more ready for this kind of treatment now than we would have been a decade or two ago because we're more familiar with these concepts. Hopefully. I mean, I'm one guy. Who, who cares about me? But if this is out there and I could take it, I would take it. I have one last question about the way in which this is a public health issue, because the main subject of vaccine conversation in the last couple of years has obviously been the COVID vaccine. And it's important with the COVID vaccine that everyone in the community gets it because you can spread COVID from person to person. Lyme disease is a little different because ticks spread Lyme disease to humans, but I'm not aware of any human to human transmission of Lyme. So... Is it a public health issue in the sense that there isn't community spread, but that it is still a disease that is at large in many parts of the U.S.? Sure. In a way, Sam Telford, the Yale professor that we quote in the story, he'll give you a great diatribe about the spread of deer and the fact that the deer population just exploded and deer are a carrier. But it's also just kind of this growing suburbanization in America the more and more you begin spreading where people live out into places in nature where they perhaps weren't found before, you can come into contact with different types of diseases and infections. I mean, that's been a story from the entirety of almost the last two years, zoonotic diseases or vector-borne diseases. And so that's, that's a piece of it too, if that fits any way into public health. The more we talk about Lyme, the more I'm feeling like it has parallels to everything else that's going on. It's like the skeleton key. It's about climate change and where these ticks are found. And it's about development patterns. It's about these sort of sociological reasons and, and economic reasons why drug companies develop the treatments they do and how they market them and what gets approved. It really touches on so many other things. Andrew, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Sure. Thanks for having me on. Andrew Zaleski's article, Finally, A Shot to Prevent Lyme Disease Could Be On Its Way, appeared in Outside Magazine in August. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Melissa Kaplan is our audio editor. If you enjoyed The Politics of Everything and you want to support the show, one thing you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.